What's up, fight fans? Welcome back to the Couchside Judges. I'm Scott Fontana, joined as always by my broadcast partner, Dan Irvin, to talk about judging in the sport of mixed martial arts. But today's show won't just be about judging. We'll be speaking with veteran referee Kevin McDonald about his path to becoming a ref, as well as how referees do what they do in the cage. Can't wait to speak with Kevin and learn more about what being an MMA referee is like. After that, Scott and I will look ahead to this weekend's jam-packed return to the UFC's Fight Island action. We've got Robert Whittaker against Darren Till, Alexander Gustafson at heavyweight against Fabricio Verdum, and the third meeting between legends Mauricio Shogun Hua and Little Nog Antonio Rogerio Nogueira. So let's give Kevin a proper introduction here, shall we? Like I said, he's a longtime referee and former fighter dating back to the no-holds-barred days. He's been the third man for bouts in the UFC, Bellator, PFL, and all over the New England region, including refing Henry Cejudo's successful flyweight title defense against TJ Dillashaw in Brooklyn at the start of 2019. He is one of the few accredited by the ABC to train referees and judges. Kevin, welcome to the Couchside Judges. What's up, guys? How's it going? Uh, how's uh, how's everything been? You know, kind of dealing with uh, you know the lack of fights going on for a little while. It, it's been. I mean, I'd be lying if I said on one hand it, it hasn't been you know nice, and I hate to say that just because I know how many people want to you know get back to work and stuff like that. But you know, you you get to a point where it was like traveling a lot, and uh, you know to have the time to have the kids home from school and. You know, we could easily complain about it, but on the flip side, unlike my boys are now going on 13 and 15, so to have six months with them, they do all kinds of cool stuff like I've enjoyed. But uh, I'm just looking forward to getting getting the fights going again and uh, jumping back in the cage. Now, now, one thing I wanted to uh, to get your thoughts on here is the stark similarity that you have to Mark Goddard. Now, you guys posted about a photo about same, this a year ago, as right? In the same haircut. <laughs> oh yeah, you guys, you guys are other than height. You are as as the photo that Mark posted last year, virtually identical. We we are different in every aspect except our hair, which is what makes it <laughs> which is what makes it great. Because you know, every time either one of us has calls that are, we'll say, you know raise the heart rate of some fans for some reason he gets blamed when i'm in there <laughs> and then I, I don't get blamed when he's in there. <laughs> so it's like so you get off scot free most of the time well he, he's he's getting you know because sometimes when things happen like you know i'll get a text like what happened mate because <laughs> he's getting blown up <laughs> on twitter <laughs> But it's and so that's why yeah we were doing a show together in uh, Chicago and we had Dan Margliotta take the picture just to show. I was I mean, wondering why that photo was taken from like twenty feet up, up in the air. Yeah, so to to, okay. to highlight the difference in height. So yeah, Mark's like six foot two, um, sleeve tattoos. Um, you know, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a strong five seven, depending on the shoes I'm wearing. But um, you know, and but really, it was just we both had like the short side bar haircut, and I've had it for you know I don't know twenty years, and uh, you know people just apparently see that and and just latched on, and you know there've been a few times where 
you know, he's like, he got called out after one fight and he's like, you know, I see him on Twitter and he's like, mate, I'm in Dubai sleeping. Like, <laughs> I couldn't have done anything. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. So ever since then, there's been the virtually identical hashtags and things like that. I, I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> so let me ask you this though. How did you first get involved in, you know, first fighting and then later officiating? So I, I was at the Naval Academy and, uh, my brother afforded UFC one and he mailed it to me. We weren't allowed to have TVs or anything. So I snuck into the company officer's room with a couple of guys, put this VHS tape in. I was like, Oh, this is great. Um, you know, a couple of years later, uh, Naval Academy and I parted on <laughs> not the ideal terms as in I didn't have a diploma, but they didn't have to put me in an A. Um, but they, so I went back home, started training Thai boxing, like just, still watching any and all pay-per-view that kind of um, ended up moving out west, then down south. I put a couple of pounds on. I was going to in bombing school in Houston because my family's in the funeral business. And uh, I was like, I, like, I got to drop a couple of pounds. So I started looking around, and I ended up finding Eve Edwards and Tim Mosel. Um, and they were working out of Brown's Gymnastics, which uh, is right on, uh, uh, what was it, I, I was in Texas, I-10, and uh, the Beltway. And it was just a gymnastics school. And Tim Mosel, who was the original Mosel self-defense forum, which then became the underground, which then became MMA TV. Um, so Tim was like a JKD guy, and he had been teaching Eve. And, um, you know, so I just jumped in, started working out with them, and went to a couple of fights, and they were like, you should fight. And so I got my first one, didn't know any ground, and I was doing well on the feet. And a guy, you know, the other guy was a jiu-jitsu guy, and he, I was in his guard. I couldn't do much, so I said, I'll get up. So I turned around, and he was like, sweet. So he put me in a rear naked, and when I woke up uh, a little while later, <laughs> to the EMPs, it was like, <laughs> is that when most guys have one or two reactions, either never again or get me another one. I like, well, I can't go out like that. Yeah, so I started fighting a bit back in those days. Um, got to do some cool ones, like, Lovers LA Underground over Huntington Beach and uh, I went down in uh, New Orleans. Um, moved back to Boston to be a funeral director uh, and then they uh, still flew out a couple of times to fight but it was tough because there were no MMA gyms. So it was like drive here, do ground, go over here to, and I just didn't love training anymore and they were having some sort of underground fights and I was like, hey, can you rest? Like I was kind of supposed to compete and then that fell out and the key ref, I was like, okay. And, uh, you know, back then it was kind of like, if you tap, stop it and don't let him die. It's kind of like the baseline rules. Um, no holds barred. So, yeah, well, and we were able to, you know, we did a lot of those crazy fights, like the slap fight, you know, which is funny because it was like, well, so long as it's not close fist to the face, the boxing commission can't get involved. So you get soccer kicks and stomping, you know, just go punch in the face. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was just fun. So I kind of started reffing there and then, um, and then met my wife. We hit the road because she was a travel nurse. So we moved around the country for a couple of years, got to train with some great folks, um, around the U S and then when I moved back, um, Massachusetts had started sanctioning fights and guys were like, put your papers in because it's kickboxing and boxing reps and guys get hurt. So I put my stuff in, got licensed. And then after like, I don't know, three or four fights, um, they stopped sanctioning because someone brought it to their attention that they took kickboxing license, crossed it out and wrote MMA, which is not a legal thing to do. 
So they put a six-month moratorium, and after a few months, we all kind of looked up and were like, it's not illegal, it's just not sanctioned. <laughs> so we found Paul, Paul Rosner from the USKBA, and he's like, right on, I'll sanction it. So we started doing fights, and that three- or six-month moratorium ended up going, I think, about six years. And in that time, we were running fights all the time. It was a blast. You'd have three or four a month. And um, I provided the the bell, the air horn, the scorecards. I hired the officials. Uh, another guy had the cage, you know, and it was, it was just rocking. So that's kind of how I ended up where I was. I love hearing about the Wild West of, of how MMA kind of got to where it is now. It's, it's, this is always fun to hear. Oh, it's it's crazy. And, and, you know, I'm so blessed to be able to have been a part of it then, you know, and see where we're at now. Because, like, I was, you know, I fought in one event in Huntington Beach, and the police raided it, and me and Bobby Gamboa, the fellow I had just fought, we get locked down in um, the steam room at, uh, I think it was LA Boxing, and, you know, because we're both covered in my blood, and <laughs> they're like, don't come out of here until someone gets you. Like, okay, so we had to make it look like a grappling tournament until the cops left, and then they're like, you know, all right, it's cool, come back out. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I got some stitches, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but you know to go from that where the cops are raiding joint to like being escorted in in certain countries you know by the police in the military like uh, it's been a very cool journey yeah that that sounds uh pretty awesome but uh it seems like a lot of fighters still aren't totally clear on all the rules uh, I, was, I was curious what kind of questions do you get a lot in the locker room before fights so it it depends um smaller shows we do the big group rules meeting and there, oftentimes, nobody asks a question because it's almost like that whole, you know, we were at one thing one time up in New Hampshire, and uh, I go over all the rules, and then I'm like, does anyone have any questions? And then, oh no, it was right before we were starting the rules meeting, and one kid raises his hand, and I'm like, seriously, we got the question before the rules <laughs> meeting? And I'm like, yes, sir, what's up? And he's like, can we hold off one more minute? My Shihan is parking. And it was like... <laughs> Everybody immediately like what you just Somebody's getting knocked off. <laughs> you know, it was just, you know, not you know, just say coach or say something. You know, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, so yeah. Then when we're you know on the bigger shows, we do um, individual and. You know, honestly, most of the time, they don't ask as much as they'll say, how do you handle this? Or, you know, this is what I do and this is how, to which my response is, here's what you will hear from me. Um, you know, like, for example, I don't, I don't like to make a habit out of grabbing fighters if they're unconscious or if I think they're unconscious um, for multiple reasons. For one, um, I've seen people choked unconscious who are rigid. I've seen people choked unconscious who are completely limp and I've seen folks unconscious who have been twitching and in that kind of charged environment, I, I also look at it from the fighter perspective. And if I'm like defending with all my might and then all of a sudden I feel like another hand or set of hands, like there's a chance that might confuse me, you know, or I might, you know, what? Um, so I just usually explain to the fighters, Hey, if it looks like you might've gone out, uh, I'm not going to start by grabbing you. I'm just going to kneel down and nice and loud. I'm just going to ask if you're okay. 
and you do not need to let go of a defense to give you a thumbs up or anything like that. You can wink, punch, move an elbow. Anything that shows you heard what I just said to you means you're conscious and awake. So I'll just back off. You know, if, if there's no response whatsoever, then when I start assuming you're in trouble. And again, different people do things different ways. There's not per se, you know, correct or incorrect. But over the years, you know, I found that that, that works pretty well. So, you know, whether it's the coaches or the fighter himself, like everybody hears, it's not just like, oh, I think this guy's in trouble. Like, oh, let me go over and shake his hand. Let me... Because when you're in the moment, things seem like they're taking forever. And then when you see it after the fact on camera, it's like, yeah, that was like... 1.1 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the hardest things is trying to slow it down. Now you train referees and judges, you know, and you have, you have courses yeah. for this, obviously that we spoke about. What are the biggest points of emphasis for you during your courses for both referees and judges? So for referees, um, you know, I talk about, and, and this can goes for judges also, but there was a thing that I put up a long time ago on the internet. It was from, University of Edinburgh, it was like the Scottish Football Association, but it talked about the science and the art of officiating. And the science of the officiating, any of us can learn. That's the rules, the regs, procedures, the, you know, just all that kind of hard data. And anybody can learn. The art of officiating is where you sometimes have to look at things from a different angle. You know, do you out at this fighter who, you know, has broken the rules. And, you know, it, it, I say, you know, not to be crude on your program, but it's like the difference. You have to be in control, but not be a dick. And there's some referees that want to bark orders at people and, you know, this is my kid. And it's like, that's not going to work. And then there's others who are way too passive. So to me, what I like to stress is first and foremost, you got to know the material. If you're a referee... You need to know what all the rules are, what all the major takedowns are, what all the major escapes are, what all the, like, there's there's so much that comes in because when you say go, it's coming at you at 100 miles an hour. And the referee is generally the one who most commissions look to, most coaches, most fighters, most, like, like historically, the ref is the guy who, when there's some weird question about how does this fight end or how should this be written down or how should whatever, um, it's the referee that they go to. Um, so my thing with referees is you got to know your stuff. And the second part is if you're prepared, listen to your gut. Now, that means that not everybody can referee. And when I say listen to your gut, um, what I mean is when what's inside you tells you this guy's done, like you have to act. When you see what appears to be a foul, you have to act. And there are some folks that, you know, they see the fingers coming out toward the face and they want to say something or they see the slide eye poke and they look like they're about to say something, but then the guy fires three more punches and it's like, oh, this opportunity's passed. This window is shut. And as a referee, you got to know it and then you have to listen to your gut. Now, if your gut is consistently off, Maybe you should look into judging. Maybe you should look into timekeeping. Maybe, like there are other ways you can be involved. Uh, same thing with stoppages. If you're consistently early, like don't try to change it by now stopping things later than where you're comfortable because that's how someone's going to get hurt. You know, if you're consistently late, you know, 
you could try stopping things up, but anything after that, it, it becomes not natural. And we're all going to have problems where we have fights and it's early or it's late, you know, and, and, but it's when you look at someone's body of work, if that makes sense. Sure. No, that makes sense. And when it comes to the judges, again, know the sport, know the language and know that you're being paid first and foremost for your judgment. So that means that sometimes when I start judge classes, one of the disclaimers I make is everything I'm going to tell you today, there are examples where it's not true because this is a strange and odd and unique and dynamic sport. So like I think I said to you the other day when we were speaking, like stripes thrown from mounts are generally regarded as of higher quality than strikes thrown from the bottom holding somebody in guard. Now, does that mean that there aren't people that can mount and throw 30 punches and do zero damage to their opponents? No. Does that mean that someone holding a guy in their guard can't knock their opponent out? No. But overall, not, it's not common for fighters to pull guard because they want to start strike. So, and, and that's the hardest thing. Like teaching referees, stuff is pretty cut and dry. Like, hey, this is legal, this isn't. This is judge courses are when opinions get involved. And, and that's when, you know, people, because they take it very personal, you know, when they disagree. And at the end of the day, you know, I give the example like we talked about before, you know, two stiff jabs, one heavy leg kick. Every single one of us, if we're true fans of this sport, should be able to think of multiple instances where two stiff jabs did some damage and a leg kick didn't. And yet we also should all be able to think of instances where two stiff jabs didn't do much at all and a leg kick, we were all like, damn! <laughs> so Definitely. that's the hard thing about this. And the more you try to put it into words, the more people look at it and they say, but what about this? But what about this? But what about... So now I was on the rules of the committee for uh, four years or something. And it's, you'd be shocked at how difficult it is to change anything because again when you have a couple of people from from that teach the classes that have heard all the questions that have heard all the like everything you say and potentially put down on paper you are now making it a hard fact so that people can say what if what if what if that's what makes so much of the controversy and that's why the the criteria is left a little more vague and open i mean vague is probably not the right word but more open-ended right well, if, if you start trying to, you know, and, and you guys should try it, you know, or some of the listeners, listeners or whatever, like, like something you think is good, you think, oh, this would be, you know, talk to a couple of really knowledgeable people in the industry and just be like, hey, what would your counter be to this? You know, almost like in the legal thing, you know, when people are in law school, they, like they might not agree with the point they have to take, but they're going to be assigned, you have to take the defense or you have to take it. So... And once you start looking into that, you realize how hard it is. Because I'll give you an example. We have, um, you know, the criteria, you know, and now we're down to three, but kind of. So you have, you know, your three effectives, effective striking and grappling, which is the primary criteria. And then you have um, your effective aggressiveness, which is the tiebreaker for the primary criteria. They're all equally weighted, but they're not. Effective aggressiveness is the tiebreaker. And then you have your cage control. Now, cage control is the tiebreaker for the tiebreaker. So we judge heights based on effective striking. If that is non-existent or if it is 
completely equal over the course of three or five minutes. At that point, a judge can consider effective aggressiveness. And that is the tiebreaker. Now, the very definition of effective aggressiveness, you could argue, is already covered under effective striking effective crowd In theory, yeah. You know, you know who moves forward, you know, dictating the pace. I mean, it's just, you know, while scoring effectively. With, okay, well, if we're saying while scoring effectively, in order to be scoring effectively, you need to either be landing strikes or landing grappling techniques, right? Exactly. So, okay. So now we're going we're gonna to go to, you know, potentially case control, base place position. All right, well, some of that's kind of already covered. <laughs> so now I know exactly what it means when I look at those criteria. And that's one of the hard things when you're trying to teach because there are some people, there are a lot of judges, they want a mathematical formula that I can say, hey, look, do it this way. And this in this situation, this in this situation, this in this situation. And you know what? You will always be correct and there will be no drama cast upon you and no one shall tap on you online. But it's not possible. No. And that, that's why when I teach a class, my goal is to teach them the criteria and test their knowledge of the sport. And I want to give them the tools so that they can use the criteria to, uh, to, um, back up their assessment of the record. Not, hey, here's the criteria, and this is how you have to do it, and this is how you, you know. I want you to understand, like, whether that teep to the belly, you know, was more than that calf kick, or, you know, whether that, you know, power double, you know, was better than that, you know, of more quality than, you know, that jab cross hook that wobbled the guy. You can't put into words that kind of stuff. So you just want to try to make sure that you have the right people and if they possess the knowledge and the verbal skill set to back it up so it makes sense when they explain it to other people. Okay. Uh, back it up to refereeing, though. Uh, can, it sometimes get, can it sometimes get confusing remembering uh, the rule sets, like most notably the one hand versus two hands down when you're in the cage with them? So, so here's the thing. Like, most of us that were around for a while, again, we came from three, four rule sets a night. So the people that, that make, you know, if a referee is complaining about, you know, are we under the new rules or the old rules? Like, really, dude? Like, come on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for, for fighters that have to travel around and stuff like that, yeah, absolutely. That's um, But it's not because when you get to a certain level of officiating, you, you're kind of looking at, you know, you're doing your job, and then there's maybe one or two things that are different. You know, you go to the PFL, there's no elbows. You know, and that's one of those things that, like, because you're so used to always seeing elbows and you'll see a guy like take him out and drop back, <laughs> you know, you're always like, don't do it. You know? <laughs> 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 um, but they, so when it comes to like you know, the, the grounded fighter rule, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a significant thing that it's like, and again, being on the rules and regs committee and, you know, helping to physically write that rule and then, change it, um, you know, I am hypersensitive to it. So it's like wherever I am, like I try to make it as crystal clear as possible to the fighter and then move on. You know, it was crazy because when we changed things originally a couple of years back, the whole purpose was to make it more clear. And I'm one of those kind of people, if I'm being honest, I want soccer kicks and knees to the head on the ground. Like 
less rules, easier job it is for the ref, you know, faster the sport is, faster, you know, all those kind of things. But I recognize that's, you know, most likely never going to happen, um, especially in a Western society. Right. Um, so we look at the ground opponent. And initially it was just in good faith. Okay, anything other than the soles of the feet came from Bach. Started having the guys dip in the hands and, you know, those kind of things. And then it's like, well, we don't need to change it. You know, it's just the referee. And what people don't realize, when you're the referee, okay, it it doesn't matter. Like, I can't, I can't say, it's not cool for me to be like, I thought you were playing the game. You know, same reason I don't want yellow cards. People are like, give the referees yellow cards. I, I don't want to be taking percentage of fighters curse away. It gets dangerous, man. <laughs> Those guys are big. You know? <laughs> yeah. And... But it, uh, you know, I like point. the referee. I like the referee to not be involved as much as possible. I don't like to talk a lot when I referee. I don't like to do this. Don't do that. Do it. Like, oh man, I like to stay out of it. And but when you have this with the down opponent rule, I felt let's just make it like the NFL. And let's just say you know um, anything you know anything other than the soles of the feet, um, not including the so, almost like football. I don't follow football, but like if you're running and you take it down, you just plant one hand and keep running, like you can keep doing it. And then somebody brought up, what about when there's an inside leg kick? And especially with amateurs, someone lands an inside leg kick and that guy falls down and he lands in the push-up position. And someone can then kick him in the face. Now, personally, I've never witnessed a situation where one person inside leg kicked another person and they landed in a rigid push-up position, and the opponent said, oh, sweet, let me switch kick him in the face. But the case was made that this is a thing. They said, all right, we need to make sure that this is safe. So they said, all right, so how do we define just the push-up position? Okay, anything other than the soles of the feet, not including the palms. What about the fists? You can be on your fists. Okay, again. You get your leg kicked out from under you and you land in, you know, a more difficult push-up position. Like my experience, your knees hit the ground, your hip hits the ground, your elbow hits the ground. Like, but again, we, this was the path we had to go down. So, okay. Palms or fists. All right. So we now have this rule that in effect, you would have to try to consciously decide if you wanted to avoid the kicks your knees to the head that you were going to put yourself in a horrible position, the push-up position. So I said, I can roll with that. Like, the whole goal is to discourage people from getting in, you know, putting their hands down. It's a fist fight. Don't put your hands down in a fist fight. Like, I thought that was a given, but no. So then we went around and wanted to do fights. I'd say, hey, man, here's the thing. And it it was a good teaching tool because I could say to a fighter, do me a favor, squat down, put your hands on the ground. Yeah, you see how right now? Because if you guys do it right now, if you squat down and I say put your hands on the ground, you're just going to put your fingertips on the ground. If I say you now put your palms on the ground, you're going to, because you're going to roll over a little bit because it's not a natural position unless you've got these super crazy long arms. When you squat down, your palms will not touch unless you roll forward, which effectively puts weight on it. So we're like, you know what? This works. This is cool. And so when I tell fighters, hey, look, man, if you want to down yourself, here's the deal. Cover, protect your head. Drop your knee to the ground. It's the safe way to do it. It's what we're encouraging you to do. There you go. The only way to do it otherwise is to do this. And if you put both your palms on the ground, what's going to happen? And they would always be like, well, they'll punch me in the face and jump on my back. Exactly. That's why we want to discourage you from doing it. But there were some officials that looked at that and said that we were 
encouraging fighters to put themselves in a dangerous position because apparently they would explain if you wish to down yourself, you got to put both, but then they neglect the whole put a knee down. So that was the 10% technical. And as we all know, it was 90% political. Um, but we end up coming up with the, you know, I think it was two years ago, uh, the, or a year ago, the, the great compromise, which everybody was supposed to get on board on. And I understand there's still a couple of holdouts, but that just said, Hey, look, man, um, single palm or fist. So again, you have to consciously do it, but you can still protect yourself with the other hand. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I, obviously it's such a weird area that we're, we're arguing about kind of how people can be down. Um, but speaking of down fighters, uh, I believe you and I spoke about this last week, actually, um, that there was a fight on fight Island between Leonardo Santos and Roman Bogotov in which, uh, your doppelganger, Mark Goddard, deducted two points from Bogota for an illegal knee. And this was right after uh, two low blows had kind of paused the action uh, with only a warning. Can you take us through the process by which referees decide to deduct points like this? Sure. So here's the deal. And I'm not, I think I saw a GIF or a GIF or whatever people call it, whatever the kids are calling it these days, um, you know, of that, but I don't know what happened up to or leading or, or the throwing shots or, you know, I like Mark's, take whenever it's about another referee he always says i ask myself two questions first was it the right guy in there and second was could i see the call as being reason and he's like if i got yes on the two you know we're always all good so but here's the deal when it comes to fouls you have uh, a referee can take up to two points on any foul now a referee can do anything from a heads up hey watch your fingers hey no good chance um, watch the back of the head. Or anything from a heads up to a warning slash hard warning. Um, and then they can go to one point, two point DQ. Now the points on a foul, they fall into two categories. You have intent and you have damage. So if a fight is, some people say accidental or intentional. I oftentimes use the term inadvertent or not inadvertent. And the reason I do that is because intentional just has this this association of malice with it. Yeah, I was thinking malice. You no, know, because if it's a, yeah, because like if, if if you kick someone in the balls, and I'm like, whoa, you know, and I take a point. I'm like, that was intentional. You know, it's like, man, you you, you know, like, you just walked in there and blasted him. You know, like that's the way. And then when it's pointed like intentional kick to the groin, it's like, oh, you're picturing, you know, like. You know, holding the heels and, you know, <laughs> but so it, 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 it's not, you, you have to look at, you know, and that's why I, you know, PC it a little bit with inadvertent or not inadvertent. You got to look at the target and did the target move or did, you know, the guy time it back. So like, if you're getting up and I'm going to knee you in the face and I'm planning on kneeing you in the face and I'm waiting for that second knee to come off the ground as you're getting up and I fire it, boom, it hits you. Like if I timed it wrong, that's an intentional knee to the head of a ground opponent. That is a not inadvertent knee to the head of a ground. Like you were trying to knee him in the head. You did knee him in the head. You just timed it wrong. As opposed to you and I are pummeling back and forth and I fire a knee up the middle, which catches you right on the face, but you would just start it 
a double leg. So let's say I was going to knee you right in the chest, but you drop levels. My knee hit your face. You now got a big laceration up the middle. Like that's an inadvertent foul, but it's a foul I'll take a point on because there's damage. You're no longer the same fighter because of something outside the realm of. So when you have intent and damage, so if someone's, you've given them a couple of heads up and then they land the foul and the foul has damage all day, you can go right to two points. If there's a foul that's, you know, accidental, but it, the fighter's no longer the same person because, you know, maybe they're dry heaving in a bucket or maybe they've, they've got a laceration or, you know, whatever. Like, like you have to address that fact that the foul did damage. That's completely outside intent. And then you also have to do intent. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's a, you know, and even when we change the rule with the, the pokes, pokes to the eye, you know, fingers outstretched toward your opponent's eye. For years, it was hard because it was the only foul was the poke. So you could have someone throwing it out there and you're like, watch the fingers, watch the fingers, watch the fingers. And there's nothing you could do until the poke happens. So it was changed to the foul is outstretched fingers moving toward the opponent's face. So if a guy's pawing, we could be like, hey, watch your fingers. You know, and if we see it starting to be we have time, hey, listen, this is your warning, okay? I've already told you a couple times. The foul is not the poke. The foul is going out here. So then if a poke happens, we've already laid the groundwork, we can go right to points on that. Because the poke can't really happen unless what? The foul happens. The fingers outstretched for move toward the face. Yeah, that, that totally uh, makes sense. That That's a, a rule I like seeing. Uh, but what about on stand-ups? What's the protocol for referees to reset a fighter uh, from either grappling uh, on the ground or against the cage? So that's that's one of those referees, sole arbiter of the bout kind of things because you can't, again, try to put pen to paper on that. So I just tell fighters and, you know, I tell referees when I teach a class, I say, hey, look, here's the deal. I try to, in the first round, never stand somebody up. Unless there's nothing going on. Like, nothing. Like, the whole building is booing kind of stuff. Like, second round, possibly a little quicker. Third round, possibly a little quicker. And I say that because the, the fighters are the ones who are dictating the fight. So, if they come out, you know, a jiu-jitsu guy may be moving in a game of centimeters. So, you got to let them do that. You gotta let the first round sort of dictate. Okay, is this gonna be? Uh, it's just the kind of guys that immediately lock up and then jump and then jump in guard and just body body head, 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 like that kind of stuff. We'll let that go the first round. Second round, hey, you gotta do something a little more than that. Like when the judges don't have anything to score, that's when I usually give the fighters a heads up. Simple. Let's go, guys. Well, if if nothing changes, then I'll usually step in, maybe give it a little clap. You know, I need action. I never say improve your position because personally, it's like to where? Like, like what's the ultimate position? Personally, I like I like to sit in side control, you know, if I'm going to do damage. Some people like mount. Some people like to sit in the guy's guard. Some people like health guard. This whole improve your position, like, starts waiting thing. I don't care what position they're in. They just need to be doing stuff to try to finish the fight to give something for the judges to score. And so I'll just call for action. You know, if nothing changes, give the clap. You know, let's go, guys. Again, nothing changes. Stop, stand, we break. Same thing against the fence. If two guys end up against the fence and it's 
pommel weak knee, pommel weak knee, reverse, pommel weak knee, pommel weak knee, reverse, pommel weak knee, pommel weak knee. Like first round, let you guys do that all second round. And again, tell them in between rounds, hey, you know what? You need to work a bit off the, you know, off the cage. You know, you need to be working. Like fighters are supposed to always be trying to work toward a finish. And it's a fine line because as, as officials, we don't want to get involved in this. But if it's coming down to the point where, again, this is a, a ticket-driven product, so people want to see fights. So you give them enough room to work, and then if they've, I look at it as, are we at a stalemate? And if we're at a stalemate, which means both both parties have neutralized each other, or they've both decided that no one's going to move forward anymore, they're content to just do this and, and there's nothing, then that's when I give them a heads up, give them a little bit more of a, and then, you know, we stop on break. And if, personally, I found that if you do that, like if, if you let them completely do whatever in the first round, and then in the second round, when everybody sort of had enough. So then by the third round, it's like, hey, look, man, we want to see who finishes this fight. It's a way of kind of solving the problem without becoming part of the problem, if that makes sense. I think I understand. I mean, it's it's tough because, you know, some guys get in there and, you know, they they get very... Like, I don't like to stand people up or break people. But if both fighters have decided, we're just going to hang here and just do this, that's when I look at it is when I should get involved. Now, one thing I tell fighters in a rules meeting is when a guy, if you tie up your opponent's arm, like if you're down, you know, in guard, if you got a guy in guard and you tie up his arms and you look at me, don't expect anything, <laughs> you know, because this is not a, this is not a thing where, where you are now quote forcing this stand up because when you tie up a dude and then you look at me, you're essentially saying I can't do anything without your help. You're not there so, to save them from that. We're, we're going to be there for a while, <laughs> you know, but I mean, again, there, there's not, cause, Everything comes in, in phases. Like that was a thing for a while where fighters would do that and then they would look at, you know, the referee, you know, and kind of wait for the standoff. And it's like, no, we, we really can't be officiating like that. Like we step in when you guys have, have canceled each other out or you've both mutually said, oh, I'm just, I'm good here, you know? <laughs> it's like, no, you, you still have, you still have four minutes of fighting you're being paid for well that's on them to figure out so real quick yeah, before we uh, before we sign off though I, I wanted to kind of get your advice that you would give to other officials who you know because obviously all you guys have a bad day but you guys your bad days are the ones that people remember the most unfortunately uh when it comes to thinking about you guys you know there's you know you hear about people saying oh i like this ref but then usually all people can remember about refs they don't like is they did this one thing bad what advice do you give to officials who are getting trashed in the media or trashed on social media for their work? <laughs> Completely stay out of it or, <laughs> or go all in once. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy time. It's a crazy thing. Like, you know, I've got, you know, death threats and threats of harm and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, it, it, it's a part of the thing. People are like, it shouldn't be. It's like, yeah, it shouldn't, but you know, it is what it is. Um, but here's the thing. Um, when I tell new referees, I say every bout you referee, think of it as a checking account. 
So you have, when you come out, every bout where there's no drama or you do well, uh, you're putting money in that account because you're going to have to make a withdrawal. It will happen. Now, if you have to make three withdrawals in your first 10 fights, you're going to have a hard time clearing that because you don't have the balance. You know, you get some years under your belt of making solid calls with people knowing they can trust you, knowing you take it seriously, knowing that all you get called up, you know, to some bigger shows, you know, people start recognizing you a little bit. Um, uh, you know, then when the controversial call happens, you know, cause at each level of show you move up, a withdrawal gets larger and larger. And so for newer officials, it's like, Hey man, you're going in there to do something where at least 50% of the people already hate you. They're going to find out your personal information. They're going to trash you. They're going to make fun of your appearance. They're going to make fun of like all this kind of stuff. And no one's off limits either. You're, and you're going to get paid crap money. <laughs> so you really better like this. <laughs> I mean, your average local show, you're getting anywhere between 150 and 400 bucks, depending on what the state. That's for the whole night. And that's having this deal with, like, you're in the VFW hall where, you know, the kid whose fight you just stopped, he's got, you know, 150 tickets sold, and there may be some affiliations to organize groups that don't, and now you have to walk through them all to get to your car because, you know what, you park next to his family in the parking lot. So, you know, it kind of right from the get-go, you, you, you learn that kind of stuff. When, when you get to some of the bigger venues and bigger promotions, you know, most of it is more, you know, online harassment. I mean, I tell my kids, you know, like, they're like, oh, it's online bullying. I'm like, yeah, take a look at dad's Twitter feed, you know, after last week. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, someone made plenty of freckles. Take a look at me, you know. <laughs> but uh, so it's a, um, I mean, with new officials, it's it's just, you're going to get, you know, and it's like the old base to suck. Like, if you don't really, if you don't really enjoy this, don't do it. Money's not worth it. You know, the, the, the potential stress. I mean, I know some referees that, you know, have, have done some of the biggest shows and then quit immediately because, you know, you get, you know, I know other very prominent referees that, you know, all the kids have gotten harassed in school over calls that they made. You know, it, it, it's a, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and then you look at even other things, you know, like the whole usually don't bring up certain things, but you know what? Since nobody else could ever talk about it, hold on. They, uh, you know, you, you, you get a commentator decides to spout off and, and say, you know, hey, the ref smelled like, you know, booze and cigarettes. And it's like, he can't say anything to that. There's no comeback. What's he going to say? No, I didn't drink. I didn't drink before. the like, like, it's so absurd. You know, we get to the hotel, we go to dinner next day. We're at breakfast together. We're at lunch together. We're on the bus together. We're to the commission room together, sitting with the doctor, getting inspected by the doctor. Like, you really think if someone's, you know, pounding nips that they snuck in in their back, like one of the other referees are going to be like, dude. <laughs> but, you know, he comes out and says that, and then everyone's talking about it, and everyone, and it's like, as a referee, one of the hardest things, and that's why I said, either just take it or go all in, because you can't speak to any of that. Because yeah. every commission, like, I've asked commissions, hey, man, I'm taking some heat here. Can I just, nope, per your license, you are not allowed to, you know, speak publicly or comment on any bout that you've done or bout that, you know, is being yada, yada, yada. And we're going to, uh, you know, and we'll take your license and find you or whatever you do. And it's like, 
that sucks because sometimes there's one or two things that you could say and people would be like, oh, damn, yeah, I, I still hate him, but at least I know why he did it. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a shame. I, I I hate that it that it actually crosses over into not just your lives, but into families' lives too. That's where I think it crosses a line. But I hope well, it's, that people can be a little more reasonable about it for, going forward. Will they? Probably not. Oh yeah, don't argue about it. <laughs> I mean, again, <laughs> at the end of the day, this is the cage fighting industry. You know, whenever people like, oh, you know, that's not good for the sport, or that's not good. It's like this is the cage fighting industry. You know, I, I knew what I was getting into back when it was illegal, and just because it's legal, like let's stop holding everybody to these standards. Like, you know, it's you know a surgeon's conference or something. It's it's you know everyone involved is all about two dudes locking themselves in a cage, <laughs> beating each other, and that's what it's all about. <laughs> Kevin, I, yeah. I think uh, I think that pretty much does it for our time. But uh, you know, I hope we'll have you again on again soon because, as I know, you've got plenty to tell us, and and we would love to do it again soon. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. All right. All right, thank you, Kevin. Take yeah, care. Thanks, Kev. All right, take care. That show was fun. That man loves to talk, and he uh, provided us some great tidbits on refereeing and a lot of information. I can't wait to have him back. You know, I'm always happy when we have a guest on who's who's willing to get out there and and, and go off because we, we get so much information from someone like him who's been in the sport for so long and is so entertaining. He's fun to talk to. Yeah, I, I definitely had a blast doing that. But moving on to this weekend's fights, uh, as fun as that was, let's move on and look forward to the coming weekend here. We've got that Whitaker versus Till fight at middleweight that we were talking about. I like this matchup. How do you feel about it? I think it's a pretty good matchup. I think we're in for a good fight. Both guys do come to bring it. Now, PSA time from me. Both of these guys used to be welterweights and are now fighting very comfortably and successfully at middleweight. So, fighters, go up and wait if your cut's too big because you can still succeed. End of PSA. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But anyway, I really like this one as Whitaker's fight. I think he's going to take it by decision, and it's going to be fun but tactical. Yeah, I think Whitaker wins this one as well. And uh, I don't know if it's going to go the distance. Yeah, I could, I definitely could see it ending early. But I I picture it being a case where they're both going to be... They're not going to be timid. They're not going to be tepid. But I think they're going to be smart about the way they act. And I do think that's going to lead to five rounds. But we'll see. I mean, Whitaker hits hard. Till can hit hard too. So, yeah, yeah that, I'm, I'm excited. That's going to be a fun one. Do you have any other fights that you would be uh, interested in? Out of the 15 that we we have right now entering uh, Friday morning, yeah, there's at least one more I want to see. <laughs> and without a doubt, Kazmat Shemaev coming back into the cage against Reese McKee. And now this one's at 170 pounds. We saw Shemaev 10 days ago. He's looking to set the new UFC record for wins in a short span. This would be 10 days. This excludes the one-night tournaments because obviously you had multiple wins in one night that way. Modern times we're talking about here. Uh, he looked like a monster at 185 pounds last week, and now that he's at a natural weight, I just think he's going to maul McKee, right. even though I don't know much about him. And McKee's taking this fight on short notice as well, mm-hmm. so I I don't know. Mr. 10-7, he might have another uh, epic night. I am confidently predicting a first-round finish from Shemaev. And you know what? That That's totally warranted. I, I can't even disagree with it. The dude's going to be a future champ. Like. We're just waiting for him to eventually get that shot as far as I'm concerned. I know I'm I'm getting really far ahead of myself, which I don't like to do, especially with prospects. 
but there's something about this dude's game that I feel like is going to age really well as he comes uh, comes up the ranks. What about you, though? I I want to see the third fight between the legends, uh, Mauricio Shogun Hua and Antonio Rogerio Noguera. That's Little Nog. That's right. That'll be that'll be a fun one too. I mean, it's a trilogy fight, but there's it's not a rubber match because uh, Shogun's won both fights. But they got the fight of the night the last time they fought in 2015. I don't see why this one won't be exciting. We're not going to have many more fights between two former Pride guys, so enjoy them while they can. This is this is the senior circuit for sure. Uh, but yeah, I'll have fun too. I I hope it's not terrible, but I, I think it'll be fine. I think we'll have a fun time. Yeah, this isn't going to be Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz. This is going to be much better than that. Yes, it, it definitely is. Because Shogun at least is, I mean, you could argue that he's maybe a top 10 light heavyweight still, even though he hasn't fought much lately. It's hard to say because that division is starting to get better, but it just isn't uh, what it used to be. But it'll be fun. That's all for this week. Thanks again to our guest, Kevin McDonald, for joining us. Can't wait to have him on again sometime. Dan and I will be back Monday for what might be a very busy post-fight edition of the show. If we do indeed witness 15 fights on Saturday, it will have to be. Please subscribe to our show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening to us at the moment. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Couchside Judges, as well as myself at Scott underscore Fontana. Check me out as well on Twitter at Dan Urban MMA. Catch you next week and enjoy the fights this weekend. Later, guys. Later, guys.